Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. My name is Dustin. I'm on staff here at South Point. Um, if you don't know me, I get the privilege of working with our awesome worship team. The worship was good this morning, wasn't it? Yes. And uh, I also get the privilege of working with our student ministry. I'm going to give you an idea of what it is that we do here every week, just in case you're new or if you're not. Uh, it's always good to have a reminder but for those of you who don't know, our mission at South Point, this is our mission statement. And our mission is for everyone to experience God's unconditional love. And so our hope through that, our hope is that you walk out of this place seeing Jesus more clearly than when you walked in. For people who may be exploring faith or who may be new to all this, I'm just going to be frank and upfront. You are welcome here no matter what it is you believe. You can be a part of our community and we will love you and we will welcome you. But just to be honest, what we want for you is more than just being a part of a community. We want to introduce you to this person named Jesus. And I'm here talking to you. The reason I do this is because Jesus transformed me personally. He brought me from death to life. He, he set me apart and he gave me freedom and a purpose and an identity. And I hope through the scripture that we read this morning and through any words that I speak that you hear the loud resounding truth that he wants a relationship with you and he wants to transform your life as well. Now, if you, you are a believer, then my hope is that you either become refascinated with the person of Jesus, or you begin to feel convicted to live the life that he's called you to live. You begin to feel convicted towards obedience and building that relationship with him. This is all about Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about anyone else on staff. It's not about the music. It's not... Uh, this is not a self-help community where we all come together to try to be better people. This is literally all about encountering the one true Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our beginning and our end, and he is calling each and every one of us into a life that we could only dream of on our own. And so that's why we're here. It's all about him. And so if you don't like spoilers, then I'm sorry. I, I ruined the entire message. It's about Jesus. Now you know. Now, what we're currently doing, we are currently spending an entire year in uh, reading the book of John, the Gospel of John, and we're doing this in an effort to understand Jesus better. In this year-long deep dive that we're taking uh, into who Jesus is, we're calling it Revealing Jesus, which is very creative of us. Now, it doesn't matter if you've been in church following Jesus for over 20 years like I have, or if this is the first time you've ever heard his name. The truth is we all need to know Jesus better. And there will never come a point where we will have completely unraveled all the beauty and complexity of Jesus. There will never come a point in which we will have it all completely figured out because we are designed to need him. We're designed to depend on him. We're designed to continually seek after him and continually be restored by him. So we're reading portions of this biographical account of Jesus' life called the Gospel of John every single week this year, and it's all in an effort to get to know him better. Now, where we are currently in the story, in this Gospel of John, is, uh, is the trial leading up to Jesus' death on the cross, his execution on the cross. And we're, so we're calling this series Road to the Cross, which again, is very creative of us. Now, we're at the very end of a series of trials right before Jesus is sentenced to death. Again, if you're new to all this or maybe need a refresher about what it is that we believe, we believe that Jesus is God. And we believe that he left 
the perfection of heaven to come and live a life on this broken planet because we as human beings, our selfish and broken nature had left us separated from God. And the reason why is because God is so good that anything that is not good cannot live, it cannot dwell in his presence. And God's definition of good is perfection. It's flawless and sinless. And so since not one person alive is perfect, we are all subject to the punishment for our imperfections and sin. And that punishment is eternal separation from God. It's, It's death. But instead of leaving us in that place, we believe that Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we could never live. And then at the end of his life, he died on a cross, taking the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we would have an opportunity to be forgiven and an opportunity at a new life and eventually an opportunity to experience eternal life with him. And then we believe he raised back to life three days later, conquering death, the final enemy, and solidifying his place as savior of the world. That's the good news. That's what we believe. And so if you hear us talking about the gospel, you hear us talking about good news, that's the good news. Now, where we are reading in the story, what we're about to read, Jesus has officially begun this process of paying for our sin. The punishment has started. And so before we read this, can can we pray together? God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a good, good father, that you are perfect, that you lived a sinless life on our behalf because we never could, and that you find us in our mess and our brokenness and our hopelessness, and you love us, and you lay down your life for us so that we could experience grace and mercy and things we could never imagine, Jesus. Will you take your word this morning? Will you take any words that I say and use them to open our eyes to you and who you are and what you've done for us? Open our eyes to our own brokenness and need for a Savior so that we can then celebrate how amazing what you did for us actually is. Let us walk out of this place worshiping you, Jesus. We love you. This is all about you. It's not about us. Be present with us. Help us be present with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we read through this, uh, as we read through this, I, I want you to remember that everything that Jesus is enduring in these moments that we're about to read, he's enduring because he loves you. Jesus sees you. He knows you completely, and he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And what he's enduring in this passage we're about to read is for that reason, because he loves you. So remember that as we read this. This is John chapter 19. It says this. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. 
So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. So these moments that we just read, um, they are the final culmination in a, a series of trials in which the chief priests, religious officials, they are seeking to have Jesus killed because of his proclamations about being the Son of God. Now, these religious officials, they believe that they had a great deal to gain by murdering Jesus, and they also believe they had a great deal to lose if things continued to progress the way they were progressing. You see, Jesus was a great threat to their religious system. He was a great threat to their way of life. Jesus was asserting value and love onto those that these religious officials had deemed worthless. Jesus not only questioned their man-made religious traditions, but he actively disrupted them. So Jesus is figuratively cutting the legs out from underneath these religious leaders. He's taking their power away from them. And as far as the government goes, even though Jesus never said so himself, these talks of the Messiah, they, they brought with them these rumors of uprising and rebellion against Rome. And so what I want you to understand is nothing that Jesus did, not a single thing, is actually illegal. But the threat that he posed to these religious officials, it was very real. And so these religious leaders, what they did is they, they backdoored the system and they, they even held illegal trials in the middle of the night and they bullied their way up the ranks so that now Jesus is standing before Pilate, who was like this governor for the, Rome, uh, for the Roman Empire. Um, and what we can see here, you can see that Pilate isn't. Pilate's not stupid. He's not blind. He's aware that this is an innocent man standing in front of him. In the book of Matthew, we actually see this additional interaction between Pilate and his wife. And it says this. It says, besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, talking about Pilate. And the message said, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So even Pilate's wife, she's having dreams and she warns him, don't take any part in this. And so Pilate practically begs Jesus, dude, defend yourself. You're innocent and we both know it. Open your mouth and give me any reason to let you go. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't defend himself. And, and Jesus not responding to defend himself, it actually fulfills a prophecy from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And the book of Isaiah was written 600 years before. And so even for non-believers, what you have to understand is everything that we just read that's all historically documented fact. That all happened. And the book of Isaiah, this 
prophecy that we're about to read is historically documented to have been written more than 600 years before. And so this, uh, this prophecy from the book of Isaiah, it's pointing ahead. This is written 600 years before, and it's pointing ahead to this moment that we just read. So think about what we just read, and this is what Isaiah writes 600 years before. He writes, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, do you think that Jesus, in this moment, isn't aware of what was written in Isaiah over a half a millennium ago? Of course he does. Jesus is the author. He's the one who instructed Isaiah to write it. After remember, he's the son of God. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing, and so nothing that happens in these interactions, nothing is by accident. Everything has a purpose. So Pilate pleads with Jesus, defend yourself. I have the authority to let you go if you just defend yourself. And Jesus responds, saying the only authority you have is the authority I gave you. I was given you from above. And so Jesus knew all this was going to happen. And so no, Jesus is not going to defend himself. And so Pilate's options now are wearing thin. To this point, he's had Jesus severely beaten. Like severely beaten. Jesus' body is torn up. He's broken. He's bloody. And he's had this jagged crown of thorns jammed on top of his head. And then it says that Pilate brought him back out in front of the people and declares, behold the man. Essentially, Pilate's saying, isn't this enough? Like, look at him. He's all beat up. He's all broken. And we all know he's innocent. Isn't this enough? And then they declare back, crucify him. And so Pilate says, you crucify him. You have my permission, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be responsible. But as we read last week, these religious leaders, they don't have authority to crucify Jesus. And they also, they don't want to have Jesus' blood on their hands. This is all illegal, and they know it. And so no one wants their name on the dotted line for having Jesus killed. But then, then they declare, we have a law. And this law that they're talking about, it actually comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, verse 16. And this law they're talking about, this law says, anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord should be put to death. This was a real Jewish law. But, of course, as we know, Jesus isn't blaspheming because he actually is God. But nevertheless, for Pilate, he's back further into a corner. And it says, in the scripture, it says, he became even more afraid. So Pilate says, there actually is a law. What am I supposed to do here? And there, people are saying this guy's the son of God. And, and so Pilate is understanding that he's in way over his head. And, and Pilate's interactions with Jesus, they're very mysterious. You know, he doesn't know what to make of him. He knows the stories. Like you said, Pilate is a governor. And so he knows who Jesus is. He's done his due diligence. He knows that he's a teacher. He knows that he's a miracle worker. He knows that he's loved by the people. Pilate can see with Jesus that there, there's more to him than meets the eye. And Jesus has spoken about his kingdom not being of this world. And he's even told Pilate, we just read, that Pilate has no real authority. And so it says in the scripture, it says Pilate sought to release Jesus. He was going to let him go, but it's too late. The Jewish leaders, the Jewish authority, they basically have Pilate by the throat here. They're going to get him to do what they want. It says the highest ranking Jewish religious leader, a man by the name of Caiaphas, we read, we read his name a couple weeks ago, 
Caiaphas was what was called the high priest. And the high priest is supposed to be the one human being on the planet who is worthy of being in the presence of God. And Caiaphas, this person who's supposed to be righteous, it says in Matthew, it says he's the one who originally found Jesus guilty of blasphemy and started this process of sending him up to Pilate. And so there's not one Jewish leader who defend Jesus and Jesus will not speak up to defend himself. And then we read at the very end that the Jewish leaders, they pretty much, they just straight up threaten Pilate. They say, this man says he's a king. Anyone who says he's a king opposes Caesar and opposes Rome. Essentially, they, they say to Pilate, are you going to be the one to let a rebel against Rome go free? What happens if there's an uprising? That's going to fall on your head, Pilate. So what are you going to do? And so Pilate caves. It says he handed Jesus over to the Roman authorities to be crucified. Now, if we're meant to read the Bible to get to know Jesus better, and we are, that's the purpose, then we have to look at Jesus in these moments and we have to start asking questions. And the big questions that we're asking this morning is, what is Jesus actually doing and, and why is he doing it? And as heavy and as full as these verses are, there's a lot going on. It's actually pretty easy to identify and examine what Jesus is doing because as you read through this whole passage that we read and everything that Jesus is enduring, if you actually look at the action that Jesus is taking, it's very minimal. That's to say that what we're really examining in these verses is Jesus' inaction or his lack of action. So why is Jesus so quiet? Why isn't Jesus fighting back? Well, let's just be very straightforward. What is happening here in these moments? What's really happening? Well, we said at the beginning before we read it, what's happening is the punishment for our sins is beginning to be carried out. Jesus is beginning to pay the debt for you and me and everyone in this story. It has begun. And so it's easy, it'd be easy to read this and think, well, these are the final moments before uh, Jesus is crucified. This is the moment right before he starts to pay the ultimate price for us. But if you read closely, the flogging, the beating, the breaking of Jesus' body, that's happening right here. The crown of thorns being shoved on top of Jesus' head, that's happening right here. Jesus has officially stepped in front of the wrath of God and is beginning to endure what would make it possible for us to experience grace, love, mercy, forgiveness, eternal life. All of that is starting right here in these moments. So you ask the question, why isn't Jesus speaking up? Isn't Jesus fighting back? Well, the answer is for you. All for you. Because the truth is, interfering with or putting an end to this suffering in any way, it would really mean that Jesus would be condemning you and I to it. What do I mean when I say that? Well, the truth is, because God is love and because God is just, sin has to be accounted for. It has to be paid for. There has to be justice. And, and really, there's two ways in which our sin, our imperfection can be paid for and those two ways that it boils down to, they can either be paid for through Jesus' death or they can be paid for through our death. And so what this means is that for Jesus to stop the suffering that he's enduring, stop the pain, would be to abandon us to answer for our own sin. Essentially, it would condemn us to eternity 
away from him. And Jesus will not let that happen. So yeah, the consequences of, of stopping it would spare Jesus, but it would crush all of humanity and, and Jesus loves you too much. I mean, even the people who would never love him back, even the people who would never believe he won't abandon a single one. I mean, we can examine the people in the story. Look at the, just the people in the story. What's Jesus' position towards Pilate? We really examine what is Jesus' position towards Pilate. He loves Pilate. Jesus is about to die for him. You can read this as Jesus essentially saying to Pilate, if I don't let you kill me, then you have absolutely no chance at receiving life. And so no, I'm not going to let you stop this. And after this moment, we don't hear from Pilate again. He's not the main character. Jesus is. But imagine Pilate. Imagine this person that you sentenced to death you catch word that he's now alive and well after he raises back to life. I imagine Pilate, we see how terrified he is in this moment. Everything he does in the situations to try to save his own skin. But little did he know it was actually everything that Jesus was doing. That was going to give him an opportunity to be saved. What's Jesus' position towards the guards? The guards who struck him and whipped him and flogged him. Well, he's about to die for them. He loves them. Essentially, Jesus is saying to the guards, if I don't let you beat me and destroy my body, then you have absolutely no chance at ever becoming whole. And so I'll allow you to beat and break me. I mean, can you imagine after Jesus is put to death and then raises back to life? Imagine if these guards were to catch word that this person that you beat and you punched and you whipped and you spit on and you humiliated, yeah, that guy, he actually is alive again. And he actually is the Son of God. Imagine the absolute terror that these guards would feel and honestly should feel. But the truth is, because we know that Jesus died for them too, I imagine if Jesus were to ever cross their path, their interaction would actually go something to the effect of Jesus saying, I didn't raise back to life to pay you back for killing me. I allowed you to kill me. And then I raised back to life because I knew it would give you your only opportunity to ever come home. And then finally, what's, what's Jesus' position towards the corrupt religious officials? The ones who are shouting and declaring him unholy and declaring him a fake. Well, he's about to prove that he's God by dying for them. He loves them. Essentially, Jesus is saying to these corrupt religious officials, he's saying, if I don't let you try to tarnish my name and falsely defame me and falsely accuse me, if I don't let you do that, then you have absolutely no chance that God will ever call you his child. I mean, imagine these Pharisees. Like, imagine these religious officials, the, the truth in all this. Imagine spending so much time trying to ruin the name of Jesus. Spending so much time trying to bury the name of Jesus and trying to erase the name of Jesus when at the end of the story the big truth is revealed that the only way that you'll ever experience abundant and eternal life is by the name of Jesus. I mean, that's poetic justice. Jesus died so the very people who 
killed him might have an opportunity to find a life that they never deserved. And so what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? What is Jesus' position towards us? Well, make no mistake, we are not just the benefactors of the story. We are also the villains. We're no different than Pilate. How many times do we do whatever we think is best for us? How many times do we try to save ourselves, to try to save our own skin? How many times do we, even though Jesus is standing right in front of us, fail to recognize who he is? How many times do we cave and fall victim to the pressures of the world around us? And so judge Pilate all you want, but we're no different than Pilate. And we're no different than the guards. We're responsible for his punishment. We're responsible for his pain and his suffering. How many times do we try to live our own way? How many times do we actively do things that we know we aren't supposed to do? How many times do we knowingly or unknowingly make the most selfish choice? How many times do we feel the conviction to be obedient and decide, ah, I'm good. And so we can judge these guards all we want, but we're no different than the guards. And we're no different than the religious officials. How many times do we, either with our mouths or with our actions, misrepresent Jesus to the rest of the world? We choose religious tradition or or earning or or our pride over the Savior. We think we can be good enough. We think we can do this without Jesus. We try our best to. And we fail time and time again. And so judge these religious officials all you want, but understand that we're no different than these religious officials. We are the villains. We are the sinners. We are the liars, we are the selfish, we are the adulterers, we are the addicts, the prideful, we are the ones who condemned him, we are the ones who beat him. We are the ones responsible for the crown of thorns on his head and we are the ones who would be responsible for driving the nails into his hands and feet. That's who we are. Broken, lost, fragile, with no hope. And how does Jesus respond? loves us. He stays silent as he's led like a lamb to the slaughter. He thinks of each and every one of us as he's being beaten and humiliated. He sees the absolute worst that we have to offer. He sees us at our most selfish, at our most prideful, at our most sinful. And in response, he makes himself the most vulnerable that he will ever be. For you. For you. So that you don't have to bear the weight and punishment for your sin, so that you can have an identity that includes being loved and accepted and made whole, so that you could be given grace that you could never imagine, mercy that you never deserved, and then eventually experience eternal life that we can't even begin to comprehend. The Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. And so you begin to feel like you aren't loved, and you are loved this much. And you begin to feel like you you have no hope. Your hope is right here. You begin to feel like you're worthless. And you are worth this much. You begin to feel like you can't fight anymore. Well, you don't have to because this is where your fight was already won. Jesus is enough. 
His love for you extends far beyond anything that you can imagine, and it is exhibited right here, and then it is finished on the cross. Your only role in this entire equation is to accept it, to believe it, to become the luckiest beneficiary in the history of the universe and accept an invitation to enter into a relationship with someone who's not only seen you at your worst and then loved you at your worst, but someone who was willing to die for you at your worst so you didn't have to stay in that place. And so we're going to sing one more song this morning. And, and we don't do this every week, but the truth is you are being invited to something here. And it requires a response. It requires you to say yes. And, and for anyone who's never said yes to Jesus before, it is as easy as saying a, a prayer, declaring it. The Bible says in Romans, it says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so in a moment we are. We're going to sing one more song. But before we do, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask every Jesus follower in this place, even watching online, I'm going to ask you to stand up and repeat it after me. I'm going to ask you to declare your belief proudly in front of everyone else here. And if you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, but you know that you want to, you feel that in your heart, you know you need a Savior who's willing to love you as you are, who saw you at your worst and was willing to die for you so that you could experience forgiveness and a full and abundant life, then I'm going to invite you to stand and also pray these words. And if you call Jesus Savior, but you've slipped, or maybe you've found yourself back in some of the messes of the life that you left behind, then if you find yourself in a place of spiritual stagnancy or feeling lost again, if you know you need to return home, then I'm going to ask you to also pray these words and repeat after me. You see, we're in this together. But the truth is, you have to make the decision to believe by yourself. You have to say yes to Jesus for yourself. As Tanner challenged last week, you have to make up your own mind about Jesus. You have to choose to follow him. And I believe this is the most important prayer that any of us could ever pray in our life because I believe that Jesus changes everything. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And so I'm going to ask you guys all to stand up with me now. And whether you've chosen to follow Jesus or whether you need to put him back on the throne of your life or, or whether you're ready to say yes to him for the first time, I'm going to invite you to repeat this prayer after me. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes and repeat these words after me. Jesus, I confess that you are Lord, Savior, and King. I confess that I am far from perfect. I confess that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on a cross to save me from my sin. I believe that you raised back to life and that you have power over all things. Jesus, I commit my life to follow you. I leave the old life behind. And I embrace the life that you died to give me.
Jesus, you are greater. Jesus, you are better. Jesus, you are everything. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me. In your name, in your name alone. Amen. How great is our God, man. <laughs>